But I'm Pastor Paul, um, pastor here at Four Oaks Killarne. So glad that you are with us. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. You know, in the early 90s, Susan and I lived in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, where I was attending seminary, and we had very opposite schedules. She would teach, she'd get up some gosh-forsaken hour like 5 a.m. every morning, would go and teach school while I was off studying theology and all those sorts of things. But our schedule were really opposite because she'd have to go to bed early. And of course, I would be downstairs in our little apartment area studying, and then from time to time getting addicted to the all-time greatest crime series, Law and Order. Everybody seen this, right? <laughs> um, you know, just watching it here and there, you get what I'm saying. And of course, Law and Order has one of the greatest opening voiceovers in television. Of course, I'm gonna recite it to you. And it goes like this. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. And then the bump, bump, right? You know what I'm talking about? Now, imagine Mike Lee when I found out they had rebooted the original Law and & Order. And, of course, I've been dialing through that uh, this season. Now, I've seen enough Law & Order episodes to know. And, I, and look, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but spent last night in the Holiday Inn Express. You get what I'm saying, right? That, that closing arguments are not the time to introduce new evidence in the trial. They'll hold you in contempt or something, right? It's, you know, closing arguments are not the time to introduce new evidence. They're the time to argue persuasively with the evidence you've already presented. It's the time to, to press in your arguments, your perspectives. You want to bring the jurors to a decision point. That's what the closing arguments are for, and that's essentially what's happening here in Romans chapter 8 with the Apostle Paul. Remember that, that the Apostle Paul's central theme in the book of Romans is that the gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes, both Jew and Greek. The gospel, Paul has told us, as we've studied this book over this past season, is the only hope for all mankind. And it's here in Romans 8 that, that, that Paul, in his sort of his magnus opus of theological persuasion, um, gives us these amazing promises of Romans 8. And, we, and we've been camping out in them over the past several weeks. And last week, we saw particularly how this, this argument kind of came to a crescendo, right, in Romans 8, 28 through 30. Paul said, essentially, believer, there is nothing that happens in your life that is outside the scope of the sovereignty of God. God is never surprised. God is working everything for your good. In fact, this was his plan for your life since before the foundations of the world. He predestined you to be adopted, to be conformed to the image of his son. And of course, since he's predestined you, of course he's gonna justify you and ultimately he's going to glorify you. And it's, it's, it's meant to be just this punctuation point on this idea that God is working for us. He's never stopped working. He's been working eternally for us. He'll always continue to work for us. And because of that, we have salvation. We have security in him. And so that's been Paul's body of evidence. But now in Romans 8, 31 and following, to the end of the chapter, Paul is going to make his closing argument. And look for a second before we read this at verse 31. Paul begins by saying, what shall we say to these things? Now, this, some, this really tells us something important, Four Oaks, about the way we are to study the Bible and theology. 
Paul is reminding us here as he asks that question, what shall we say about these things? Christian, what shall you say about them? He's reminding us that we are not passive observers. We're not audience members at a theological debate or symposium registering our approval or disapproval. We are participants in this trial, this presentation of evidence, and we are being called to render a verdict. Do I believe that or do I not? Am I going to build my life around Romans 8, 28 through 30, or am I not? What shall we say to these things? Remember, this is so important, there's a good and a bad way to study theology. The, the, the scripture writers, the gospel writers, never preach and teach theology just for theology's sake, just so that you can pass the catechism exam or show your community group how fast you can find the scripture passage for that evening, right? Or to get the Bible award or to get the seminary degree. See, for the scripture writers, their theological aims had a doxological conclusion. And here's what we mean, doxology, to worship, to praise, to give adoration. In other words, our theology is to lead us to doxology. We want to come to understand who God is in his word and be compelled, propelled towards change, towards worship, towards adoration. And Paul, as he asked this question in verse 31, he's reminding us what's at stake here. Now, Paul's letter in general, in Romans 8 in particular, I would say is, is one singular argument that calls us to say, do we know Do we really know that God is indeed for us? And Paul's answer this morning is going to be an emphatic yes. So I'm going to invite you, if you can, this morning to stand with us as we read Romans 8, 31 through 38. It's going to take us to the end of this chapter. It's actually 39. Hear the word of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is a word that we desperately need. Father, we theologically, so many of us can, can affirm these verses but personally, existentially, they sometimes don't seem real. We doubt them. 
we wonder if they're not just true for other people, are they really true for us? And so, Father, would you, in a very powerful way, for, for those who particularly need it this morning, which is all of us, write these things on our heart. Inscribe them deep in our souls with your spirit. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take your seats. Now, Paul, here in his closing argument, begins with the question. And the question is simply this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, understand something as Paul asks this question. He is not asking the question because he doesn't know the answer. Okay, once more, as a lawyer, never ask the witness a question you don't know the answer to, right? Bad things happen in trials when that happens. But that's not Paul, what Paul is doing. Paul is using a rhetorical device in the form of a rhetorical question. And essentially, Paul is saying, since God is so obviously and overwhelmingly and eternally for you, Christian, of what consequence would it be that anyone or anything or any person would come against you? Now, it should be very clear, should it not, from this passage, that Paul is not saying that there will never be anyone or anything that comes against us. Oh, there most certainly will be. In fact, Paul gives us an explicit list that we're going to unpack here shortly. There most certainly will be many things terrible things, awful things, dreadful things that will come against us as the people of God. So make no mistake, Paul, Paul's, not, Paul's not giving us the, the pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. He is going to tell us like it is. What Paul's central point, though, is simply this, church, that if God, who did not spare his own son, God, in fact, who, who gave himself up for us as a sacrifice, as an act of love, if God would do that for us, which is the supreme act of mercy and love and sacrifice, is he not going to do everything you need him to do for you? Is he not going to give you everything you need? Is he not going to lead you in the places you are to go? Is, in fact, God not for you? in every way that you can imagine. And again, the reason I think Paul goes there in this passage is that he knows, he knows humans, right? He knows our hearts, he knows our doubts. Theologically, we know this is true if you're a believer. But personally, existentially, in our hearts, let's be honest, sometimes we're just not sure. And so it was for the church in Rome. Remember, they, they, there were deep divisions within, and there were deep threats from outside. They were under Rome's boot, and they faced an uncertain, tenuous future. They were asking, Paul, is God really for us? And Paul is reminding them that God really is. And Paul is going to speak to them, he's going to speak to us about two particular kinds of threats that come against us as believers. There's an internal threat, and there is an external threat, and how Christ and his gospel speak to both. Okay, so our two points are this. We're first of all going to talk about the threat of condemnation, and secondly, we're going to talk about the threat of catastrophe. 
So let's talk first about the threat of, confront, of condemnation. Paul mentions it right off in verse 33. Look what he says there. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Now, remember, this is exactly how Paul began this whole discourse in Romans chapter 8. Remember what he says in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And of course, in both places, Paul is using the language of the courtroom. And he's reminding you, believer, if you know Jesus Christ this morning, that the judicial verdict that has pronounced, been pronounced over you by God himself is not guilty. No longer, believer, do you stand under God's righteous judgment or his righteous sentence. We have been acquitted. We have been given freedom to walk out of that courtroom, to hug our family and friends, to celebrate and to return home. Now, now don't misunderstand something. Just because we are declared not guilty just because we've been acquitted doesn't mean that we actually didn't commit the crime, right? We are declared not guilty and acquitted even though we are very guilty. <laughs> even though we are, we, are, we are desperate sinners. Guys, that's the whole point of the gospel, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the reason that it's possible that we are declared not guilty is not because God said, Let, let's just let bygones be bygones. You know, what you've done, I mean, it's kind of bad. It's not really that bad. Um, I, I know you've like kind of hated me in your heart, but that's okay. I'm gonna give you a solid, right? Gonna give you a pass, okay? That's not what Paul's saying here either. He said, there is no condemnation because Jesus, and this is the greatest news ever, was condemned for you. Verse 34 he says, God justifies us, God declares us righteous because Jesus died in our place and was raised for our justification. Now, let's be honest, though. Some, no matter how many times we heard this, we have a hard time believing it's really true. Now, we don't have always a hard time believing it's true for others. So often we have a hard time believing it's true for ourselves. Surely, Pastor Paul, this can't be true. This is too good to be true. Surely, God isn't like this. Pastor Paul, if you knew what I've done, if you knew how I've struggled, if you've known the pain I've brought into my family's life, if you've known the, the things that I've been involved with, you surely, you surely would not say this about me. You see, my, my, my record of sin is, is unique. It's overwhelming, Surely, Pastor Paul, you, don't you understand? My shame is definitive in my life because that is so often the cry of Christians, is it not? But you know, it's not just Paul who says there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. It's actually Jesus Christ himself. Now, save your place there and just flip over quickly to Luke chapter 15. Now, this is a story that you are super familiar with if you've been a Christian or in church for any length of the time, the story of the prodigal son. We're not gonna read the whole thing, but I wanna read a portion. I just wanna make sure, 
I want to I trace what's happening because I think what, G, what Paul gives us theologically, Jesus gives us in parable form. And please, and this is just a sidebar, don't drive a wedge between Jesus and Paul. Okay? Don't say that, well, the words we really need to pay attention to are the words of Jesus. He's giving us a way of life. Paul's like drawing lines and showing us who's in and who's out. False. Jesus is showing us very much the gospel in motion in this passage. The younger son has committed the ultimate act of treasury, of, of, of treachery, because he, he wants dad's treasury, right? He says, Dad, kindly, I want my inheritance now. Subtext, go, please, please just go ahead and die. <laughs> you know, I don't want to wait on the inheritance. It's taking too long. You've been living forever. What's happening? I want my fortune. Give it to me now. And the father gives it to him. And what does the son do? He goes into the distant country and he wastes it on debaucherous living. He doesn't give it to missions. He doesn't turn it into double his money and return it to his dad. None of that. He spends it all on himself. He squanders it in the ultimate act of defiance and treachery. And that's where we pick up the story. And when he had spent everything, verse 14 of Luke 15, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him out into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. Now, you know this, it's instinctive to human nature that when people mess up, when we mess up, all of us begin rehearsing our speech, right? It's our speech to our spouse about why we were late. It's our speech to our boss about why we didn't do this, that, or the other. Um, it's, the, it's the speech to our, to our children for why we're disappointing them mercilessly this time, right? It's, a, it's, it's our speech to our friends. For, for you students, it's your, it's your speech to your parents for why you miss curfew, Right? Um, it's, it's something that we're so instinctively good at, right? We want to figure out a way to justify ourselves, to explain our actions, to most of all find a way back into the good graces of those we have offended. And oftentimes these speeches are, are coupled with promises and restitutions and pledges and self-condemnation, right? They're, they're, we, we, we throw all of those things into the mix. And you can just see this going on with the son. He's rehearsed his speech. 
right? He's got it down pat. He's saying, Father, not only have I sinned against you, and he's really good here, I've sinned against God, right? I've, I've broken the fourth commandment about honoring my, my parents. And, and, and Father, I, I'm not asking for full restoration. No, no, no. Can, can I just sleep on the couch? Can I promise I will just sit at the little kid table at Thanksgiving this year. Like this, let me back in anyway. I'll do anything. Now, I don't know how all this exactly goes. It's a parable. It's a story. But the person I want you to notice in this story is not the son. That's obviously us. But I want you to notice the father. You see, I just picture him and the son is right in the middle of this speech. And look back at the text for a second. He's right in the middle of the speech, and it's like the, the father interrupts him, right? Now, father, I'll do this, and I'll do that, and I'll, I'll crawl back. I'll be, I'll be a second-class citizen. And, and, and what is the father doing? I just picture him saying, kind of looking past the son, saying, great, great, I, I totally hear you, but bring, bring this boy his robe. Bring him his ring. Will somebody bring the shoes and put them on my beloved son? Will somebody kill the fattened calf? My son who was lost is now found. You see, if you can kind of get a glimpse of that, this parent's heart overflowing with love and grace and mercy, you don't sense a shred of condemnation, do you? You don't sense a shred of condemnation, my son who was once lost is now found. And I think this is a picture of what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. See, when Paul says there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ, he's saying, not only are we forgiven, we are let back into the estate. This is no minimum wage job. We are fully restored. We take our seat back at the family table, the seat of honor with all the rights and privileges of being a part of this family. Now, let me just say, wherever you are today, and, you're, and undoubtedly, you're filtering this story through your current struggles, through, your, through the internal things that you feel so condemn you and indict you, and if you're having a hard time bringing these two things together, let me just gently pastorally say something. Maybe it's not because you think too much of your sin. Maybe it's because you think too little of God. You see, Paul reminds us, once again, that not only has Jesus died and rose from the grave for us, but remember what we said from last week, what he's doing right now. He's praying for you. And Paul emphasizes this point again. In fact, he says he is interceding for us, mean, meaning he's not merely just praying this, that, and the other. He's pleading our case. He's bringing us before the Father and says, this is my child. This is, this is my beloved. He was lost. He is now found. And I think 1 John 1 tells us the sort of thing that he's praying Listen to 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And what a precious promise this is. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, literally a defense attorney, with the Father, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, Jesus doesn't say, just come in the back door. <laughs> go, go take a time out and really think about what you've done. Okay? Jesus is advocating for us. Father, this one belongs to me. My righteousness is theirs. We don't have to earn our way back into his grace. We don't have to justify ourselves. We simply need to turn to him and to ask him, Father, will you receive me? To which he will say what? I already have. Before we leave this point, let me just ask you, for us, where in your life do you need to be reminded that God indeed is for you? That may mean taking a, a hard journey back and thinking about decisions that you've made, places in your life, things not turning out the way that you thought they would be. But parents, you know how much you are for your kids? And there's probably nobody on earth that you are more for than your own children, right? God is that for you in Christ Jesus infinitely more. And when we realize that, then the gospel is not just something that saves us, right? It actually changes us. When we realize that the Father is waiting expectantly on the road, looking for just a turn, an inclination, a hand raised to say, help me, forgive me, restore me, when we realize that, maybe, just maybe, we'll spend a little less time in the distant country. Maybe, just maybe, we'll grow tireder, a little quicker of wallowing around with the pigs. And we can know this because Paul tells us, God is for us, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's the internal threat that we face. Let's turn our attention to the second point, the external threat, the threat of catastrophe. Now let me say a couple things as we get into this. I'm not going to say everything that we could say about these particular verses. I just want to introduce it to us. We're gonna say more about this next week at our Easter services. And so one of the things that I think is important as a church family is yes, we wanna do the special things at Easter. We wanna have the donut wall and all, all that, of course, right? But at the same time, we don't wanna make things so different that when somebody comes back the next week, they're like, what is this, right? This is not what, what? I mean, this is the bait and switch. So we're gonna stay in Romans next week under this point because I think this point speaks especially to our cultural moment. Now, I want you to be thinking about that as you're thinking about who, am I, who do I wanna ask, who do I wanna invite, who do I wanna bring, who am I praying for? Because we're clearly in a season where life seems incredibly fragile, uncertain, and tenuous. It's a perfect opportunity, is it not, to talk about things, these things, with those who are wrestling with them, who are wrestling with fragility and the brokenness of the world. So we're going to spend a good bit of time on this next week, but I do want to say this for us this morning. I want to focus here under this point about how believers are to understand and interpret the catastrophes that afflict their life afflict their lives. And I use that word catastrophe on purpose. It's a strong word. And Paul lists a whole host of catastrophic things 
that come against the believer. Hey, look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God, of Christ? Shall, listen, tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Now, what, let me ask you this. What do all of those things have in common? Two things, I think. One, they are all things that assault us, that come against us as believers from the outside. They're not primarily internal, they're primarily external. And secondly, they are all things that largely, let's be brutally honest, we just don't have any control over. And, and for those of you who have walked through these things, you know that to be the case. That within 10 minutes, your whole life can change. With one phone call, with one text, with, with the police officer coming to your door, with the divorce papers that show up in the mail, with all the endless ways that the brokenness of this world intrudes into our lives, and Paul makes it very clear, and it will intrude. Now, if you were sitting in Kiev, Ukraine this season, and you're a Christian, this has been driven home to you, right? You've been told, hey, if you just leave the city, that's where the Russians are coming. Go to the countryside, right, 100 miles away, 200 miles away. The Russians won't go there, and you do, and you relocate, and this is a true story. And you get there, and to this 2,000-person village where you were, you know, you were secluded, you were safe, your family is finally there intact, and what do you think in your heart and mind? Surely we'll be safe here. But then only days later, the Russian soldiers come and they commit unspeakable atrocities, Holocaust-like atrocities. And you realize, once again, there's just nowhere I can be safe. And many of us here, let's be honest, have had to walk through Ukrainian-like tragedies in our lives recently. And they may not be on the scope in terms of the number of people they impact, but the pain is no less, right? Those who have died, those who have incurable diseases, those who have irreconcilable relationships, those who have had personal betrayals, we know all too well, don't we, what Paul speaks of here. And what we are reminded of again is that as believers, please hear this, we are not exempt from these things. Not only are we not exempt from them, but we are in fact explicitly promised that they will be brought into our lives for a purpose. Listen to these passages, Philippians 3.10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 1 Peter 2.21 for to this you have been called because God, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, uh-oh, an example so that you might follow in his steps of suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And by the way, any theology that promises you exemption from hardship, whether it's financial or medical or relational, run. Run far away. It's not biblical. 
Because I would imagine right now that the wealth and prosperity gospel section in the Ukrainian bookstore is not selling well, right? And to remind us of this, right? Paul's not trying to do an end run, end run around life. He's not saying it's, it's going to be okay. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying a lot more. He's making it very clear. This is what you and I face as believers. We have to understand this. And he quotes Psalm 42. Look back at the text. For we are like sheep being led to slaughter. See, as we read the New Testament, we understand God has many purposes for suffering. But above all, they are the opportunity to have fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. And as we have fellowship with him, we have the opportunity, believer, whatever season of suffering God has brought into your life, and I use that term very explicitly, it is once again an opportunity for you to show to those around you what your greatest treasure is, or more precisely, who your greatest treasure is. And so, Paul's point in listing these things out, I think, are twofold. First, can anything happen externally to me, to you, that can separate us from the love of God? Paul's emphatic answer is, by no means, no way. Second, Paul also wants to remind us of this. Look at verse 37. This is an interesting phrase. He says, because we in Christ are more than conquerors. I want you to think about that for a second. That's an interesting term, more than conquerors. It literally means in conquering, we really conquer, something like that. When you think of someone who conquers, what do you think of? I, I think of somebody like a, like a William Wallace kind of figure, right? He, he emerges triumphantly in the end, but he has to sacrifice so much. The people around him, his family, even his, even his very self. If you've seen the movie Everest, which is based upon John Krakow's book, Into Thin Air, it's the story of this group who attempted to summit Everest, which is, of course, one of the greatest human feats possible, physical feats for mankind. Oxygen, altitude, Gulf Stream force wind, sub-freezing temperatures, and they did it, but at great cost, right? Some lost limbs, some lost fingers, several lost their lives. Paul says, you're not merely a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror. See, not only, Christian, do we survive, do we make it across the finish line, but we do so knowing that everything that has happened, the sacrifices, the cost, the suffering, were not random. They, they, they are not permanent. They were not in vain. In fact, in every way, they were purposed, according to Romans 28, for our very spiritual good. Oh, yes, folks, you are more than a conqueror. We conquer, but so much more than that in Christ Jesus. Once again, I'll ask you this question. Where in your life, in the middle of your own personal catastrophe, do you need to be reminded of this? that the threat of catastrophe is really, in the scope of God's kingdom, no threat at all. Because Paul tells us this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us a glory which will far outweigh them all. 
the purpose of this closing argument is to bring you to a point of decision, is to bring you to a point of, of conviction, of a conviction that will transform your life. Is God for you? And Paul's unequivocal answer that for those who are in Christ Jesus, God is nothing but for you. What's our hope in life and death? In Jesus Christ, who loves me and gave himself up for me. And when you know him and he knows you, nothing, nothing can separate you from him. Let's pray.